with David Henry Wong, there's always an extra awesome to the plays. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everyone. You are joining us, whether you are listening along in the uh, course of our releasing or whether you've just found this episode on a, a random Google search or something. You're listening along to our themed month here in this season where we are talking about four of David Henry Huang's plays. That's absolutely right. Every season on No Script, we spend a month talking about plays that have something in common, however tenuous that thing may be. This theme <laughs> month, however, it's not tenuous. These are four yeah. plays by the same playwright, one of America's most well-renowned, most influential playwrights, especially the past 30 years or so, uh, David Henry Huang. We have already talked about two David Henry Huang plays, one of them as part of this themed month, and then the other many, many seasons ago now. We've talked about David Henry Huang's play Yellow Face, which is a fascinating play. As a graduate student, I'm doing a bunch of research, as I'm sure I've mentioned, on the play and thinking about the play. Yellow Face is amazing. But last week, we discussed his most famous play, which is M. Butterfly, a play that really shaped American stages in a lot of ways. Yeah, that was a great conversation. Great to get to kind of dive into the themes of that one. And this week we are moving to a, a play that he wrote after M. Butterfly and that, or, well, actually it's a little complicated. We'll get into that in the context a little bit. The, <laughs> kind of before and kind yeah. of after. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> that was produced after M. Butterfly. Uh, we're talking about Golden Child this week. Yeah, Golden Child is an underknown David Henry Wong play. It was part of a revival uh, in 2012-2013, in which we'll talk about in the context section, as part of a David Henry Wong residency. And that's sort of the most recent, very notable production. It has a little bit of a life at the regional professional scene, but it's not nearly as well known as M. Butterfly or as Yellow Face or right now as Soft Power is, a musical that he did the book and lyrics for, which we'll come to at the end of our theme month. Yeah, yeah, it's a very historical play. It's uh, it's it's kind of capturing a moment in in history. I'm excited to get to talk about it because there's a lot of great kind of conversation around around this particular moment in time that the play addresses. It's a very personal story too, a very family centric story. So I'm excited to get the chance to talk about it. Before we jump into the conversation, though, I want to take just a second and thank our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash/NoScriptPodcast for being patrons of the show. Thank you all so much for uh, all that you do to help NoScript the podcast continue to have these unscripted conversations about theater's best scripts. We love getting to do this show. We love getting to put on this show for all of you out there in podcast land and have these conversations, have these themed months. Um, uh, the And the, the patrons over at patreon.com slash podcast make that happen. We are completely supported by them. Um, if you're looking for a way to help out the show or just to get involved in the NoScript community a little bit more, Patreon is a great way to do that. We have a number of different tiers over there. We have patron-only posts over there, and you can join for as little as $1 a month, $12 over the course of a year. It's a great way to help out the show and help with the the, the various costs that are associated with uh, running a podcast. So if you're looking for a way to get involved, patreon.com slash podcast is a great way to do that. Thanks to all our patrons who have already become patrons on Patreon. We will see you over there. And now back to the script. Jumping in. 
Cool. Hey, okay, so this play was premiered in 1996 at the Public Theater. It was directed by a famous director at the time, James Lapine, and it um, it was commissioned by a, a company out west, the South Coast Repertory Theater. However, neither of those are really the beginning of the story of this play. This is a fascinating story, and, and really, David Henry Huang, as an author, as a playwright, as a libretticist, is that the word that you say? Anyway, yeah, he's got yeah. a lot lot of fascinating influences on the work that he does. Pick any David Hong play out of a hat and just look up how he came to the idea of writing that play. We talked about that a little bit last week with M. Butterfly and the newspaper headline that's sort of fueled in him this pseudo-real, pseudo-fiction version of that story. We talked about that with Yellowface. Some events from his life that truly happened are represented accurately in that play. And then from those real events from his real life, a totally fictional plotline is spun off. And so that I mean, as the third David Henry Huang play that we're covering, this still lives in that same world of those three things. And we're going to see that going forward with his plays as well. So the story goes that when David Henry Huang was younger, and you can read this story in the foreword of the script, but also there are a couple of really nice interviews with him where he retells this story of, of crafting this play from this experience. When he was a young kid, his grandmother, who lived in the Philippines, was uh, deathly ill, uh, very near to dying. And he, uh, even as a young person, had a sense that she, in her life, in her memory, were so many of the stories of their family. Um, and that when she died, those stories would probably be lost unless they were recaptured in some way. So he asks his parents, can I spend the summer with grandma in the Philippines? I'm going to capture all of those stories that she has in some ways. So they say yes. He goes, he spends time with his grandmother, and he does what we now think of as oral histories, series of tapes, recordings of her telling these stories. He translates all of those into a book about his family history. Again, he's 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 like a, a kid, right? He's right, already he's like doing this kind yeah. of work. Yeah. So he, he writes this book about his family history and passes it around among his relatives, and, and so it goes, right? So now, many, many years later, he is a a, a world-renowned playwright. M. Butterfly happened about uh, eight years ago at this point. He's commissioned to write a play. He comes back to this book that he wrote as a kid of his family's stories, and he comes across this story that his grandmother told him about her father's conversion to Christianity. And so this would be his great-grandfather, right? And many of the events that you'll hear from Jackson in the synopsis are true events from this story. Now, as with all David Henry Huang, it's a fictionalized, played with, messed around and turned upside down version of these true events. But it is it is very much the case that this the uh, the events that occur in this play are taken from the real stories that his grandmother told him about her parents uh, from from when she was growing up. So that's how the play came to be. That's a little bit of the context. So. 
1996, as I said, world premiere at Public Theater. It won the 1997 Obie Award for playwriting. It uh, was transferred in 1997 to a different production at South Coast Rep in California. That was the company that commissioned it, so they finally got to do it. Then they went to the Singapore Repertory Theater in 98. And all of this was part of a workshopping of the script that was taking place. He only had a, a very sort of loose sense of what the play was. In fact, in the very early versions, the like the exoskeleton of the play, the contemporary setting that Jackson will tell you about is much more prominent in early versions of the script, even to the point where there are a series of monologues throughout from the contemporary day character. He ends up cutting that across all this workshopping, and he decides that because this is a play about like 19 early 1900s China, right? That he And he's a, an American from the contemporary day. He's a little bit worried about how his, his writing of this story is really going to play. So he wants to take it to Singapore to see how Asian audiences will receive the work that he's doing. He goes, apparently it's an incredibly impactful experience. He has people coming up to him, telling him about how now they are going to capture some of their family's stories so that they can, they can have this sense of what has happened in their ancestry across time. Uh, it plays at the American Conservatory Theater. That's in San Francisco in 98. Finally, it has a Broadway run. And, and all of this workshopping from the commission by South Coast Rep all the way through the Broadway was really always towards the idea of a Broadway run. At this point, David Henry Huang is a pretty well-known playwright, and the idea that a great new play by him is going to go on Broadway is sort of a given, but there's a long workshopping process. It gets put off several times because the script is not quite ready. But finally, in 1998, it gets its Broadway run at the Longacre Theater. It's nominated for a Tony for Best Play um, in 1999 and 2000. The East West Players, who are big David Henry Huang proponents, they named their stage after him. I think we talked about that last time. They do a production, and it lives in that sort of regional professional theater world until 2012, 2013. The Signature Theater, that's a major off-Broadway theater, does a revival as part of a series of uh, that is sort of run by David Henry Huang, including a lot of his plays and several others um, and it comes back into prominence and he does another sort of revision of the script at that point in time you know uh, what, what would that be let me do quick math here uh, 4 uh, plus yeah. 12 16 years <laughs> yeah. 16 yeah. years after he originally wrote the script he's still doing some revisions on that thing so this this play has ha- has a fascinating life I think almost more than any other player I, I know of the, the way David Henry Huang's plays come to be is almost as interesting as the plays themselves <laughs> which are fascinating plays right it's always a great story and and yeah yeah it's super fun to uncover the kind of ways that the story came about we will be using the 1998 copy of the script for our conversation today that's the version that went to broadway the first time um so that's that's the that's the script that we'll be talking about today um i'm gonna do a real quick synopsis of the story it's worth noting at the top of this that there are a number of like all the characters are are are, are chinese characters in this play and I, alas, do not speak Chinese, so I'm going to do the best job that I can on these names and just apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> that's that, that's about it for that. Um, so and, we're and gonna... me even more than Jackson, because Jackson <laughs> will at least be consistent. My pronunciation is probably going to be all over the map. Again, we'll do our very level best. 
Yes, we will. Yep. So jumping into the uh, story, this is a two act play, and that two act play is bracketed by two or or, or uh, book ended by two scenes. These two scenes take place in the present, and they kind of establish the scene of uh, this character Andrew, um, who is uh, 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 his he's 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 trying to fall asleep at night. His uh, girlfriend Elizabeth is in the bed next to him, and uh, we've discovered through some of the action of the scene that she is pregnant, and he is. Trying, he's kind of grappling with this reality. Uh, he's in his fifties, and uh, so he's he's trying to kind of process that. And into the scene steps his grandma, or the spirit of his grandma, on. Um, on steps into the scene and uh, kind of uh, critiques some of his choices and uh, and suggests that he maybe you know start you know doing the work of settling down. You need, and she says, "You need to remember the story that I told you about your." grandfather great grandfather um and uh and then that kind of sets off the story the the middle the kind of meat of the story of this uh we flash back yeah, in time like to... 90% of the play i mean it's like the yeah. middle 90% it, really this is the play is this flashback from the past sort of period section yeah andrew's great grandmother would be ans father and that character is tiang ben Bin, excuse me, Tiang Bin, Bin, and uh, he's a, a character in in nineteen uh, nineteen eighteen Southeast China. He's a character who uh, he's he's been a, a way to uh, in the Philippines, kind of selling uh, in in business with Westerners in the Philippines, and he's been kind of exposed to this more Western thought, Western business. And he while he's been down there, he's left behind his family. Um, now at the time in China, uh, his family was a polygamist family, and so uh, the family is made up of his three wives and two children. The three wives are, um, uh, his, his first wife is Siu Yong, his second wife is uh, Luan, and his third wife is Eling. And uh, An, who, who we've mentioned before, is Siu Yong's daughter. And then there's, uh, Luan also has a, a, a son uh, with with. Bin, but that son never comes on stage. He's only ever talked about off stage. So he's left behind his whole family. And finally, after a long time, I, be I believe I'm inferring years, um, he is coming back from the Philippines uh, to to visit them again. So we kind of jump into the scene with uh, the, uh, those his, his three wives kind of preparing for his return and on, and on preparing for his return. Um, his return is 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 met with uh, celebration. He's also the, the this family is the kind of ruling family of the region. He's in charge. Their family is in charge of the whole village around, and so he returns, and uh, and he brings a lot of these kind of Western ideas back with him. He says that uh, he brings back Western gifts for his wife, like uh, a cuckoo clock and a a waffle iron, and um, oh, I'm forgetting the other thing. Oh, a phonograph, a very important phonograph um, that that he that he brings back, and and just slowly begins to talk more and more about this Western life that he has experienced in the Philippines. He says on on his, the boat ride back from the Philippines, he's met a, a reverend, a Christian reverend, who he wants to invite over so that he can just kind of learn more about Christianity. And in a reflection of of just the kind of Western influence on the region, he just wants to be more and more informed about that. Now, intermixed into 
all of this is quite a bit of uh, kind of house politics. Um, the the uh, his first wife Su Young kind of runs the house. Um, uh, at least the 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 goings on of the house. Uh, Luan is in charge of the events and the food of the house. And then uh, the, the third wife, uh, Iling, is in charge of uh, kind of the the village around and the cleanliness of the village. Um, there's quite a bit of politics between them. Uh, um, when Chiang Bin comes back, he favors Eling quite a bit. He, she is the youngest of the three wives, um, and so uh, the, and so he he favors her quite a bit. But the different uh, perspectives of each of the three wives come to bear. Um, Su Yong does not uh, is not on board with this kind of in in flux of Western traditions into their family. Um, there's the all all three of them at the start of the play, and and Chiang Bin as well are are are, are used to their um, their religion and the worship of their ancestors and the prayer to their ancestors, and uh, so each of the characters kind of um, approaches this encroaching of of Western Christianity, especially uh, differently. Uh, Luan kind of uh, decides to jump on board that train a little bit to partially to try to win some favor from Tianbin and uh, becomes uh, more interested in these kind of Western uh, thoughts and Christianity. Well, Eling tries to kind of get on board, but has some more uh, reservations, especially when it comes to leaving her ancestors. Um, she has a lot of uh, desire to remain with them. So that's a lot of the action of Act One. The other really big thing is An, who comes through quite a bit. She kind of comes comes in and out of the scenes. Um, is a very precocious child. She uh, calls herself the Golden Child, and a lot of the drama of her character in this first act is around foot binding. Um, foot binding as a cultural practice to uh, uh, limit the growth of her feet. Um, and uh, it's a very painful practice. And so she is obviously wanting to kind of relinquish that, but it's it's a cultural practice of theirs. So her mom, Su Young, does not want to relinquish that. However, Tiang Bin does, uh, as a result of his kind of the, the Western influence, does seek to do it. And by the end of the scene, a lot of the drama builds towards eventually them taking off the bindings of her feet. That's a big, so it's a lot of stuff in act one around these two cultures uh, colliding. A couple months later, uh, or act two begins and months have passed. It's the summer of the year after, or I'm sorry, the spring of the year after. And the scene picks up, or the act picks up with Reverend Baines coming over and kind of having these cross-cultural conversations. He's It's clear that he's been coming a lot, that he's been talking a lot about Christianity with the family, that uh, Luan has been a part of these conversations as well as An, although An is there uh, partially from her own interest, I think, but also at the behest of Sue Young, who has sent her as kind of a spy um, to, to keep track of what's happening, what sort of conversations are happening here. Um... Throughout the course of the scene, we see Luan try to navigate her way into favor with Reverend Baines because of the uh, the advice that Reverend Baines is giving uh, to Qingbin that um, if he wants to become a Christian, which Qingbin starts to like move towards um, and uh, express a desire to do, but if he does want to become a Christian, he has to uh, only be married to one person. Um, there's, there's the, the, he kind of, uh, says that the others can still live in your house as sisters, but you can only be married to one. So each, once that becomes clear, again, there's some kind of jockeying of position within the household. Luan tries to, uh, be sure that she and her son, um, are, are in good standing with Tiang Bin and, uh, kind of follow this kind of Christian way. Um, Su Young continues to resist this kind of influx of, of Christianity into the family. And Eling tries, as I said, to kind of get on board, but there's some 
hesitation there as well. This eventually leads to enough conflict that uh, Siu Yong, um, who has uh, uh, kind of as a result of the the kind of family politics and the absence of Tiangben for so long, has kind of, has developed an opium addiction. Um, she eventually. Uh, succumbs to that addiction as a result of of the uh, the rejection of Tiangbin and the the continued uh, contention uh, between uh, these two cultures that she doesn't want to she doesn't want to relinquish her own culture in favor of the new Western culture and she ends up actually dying of an overdose a self-inflicted overdose to kind of free herself from this and asks her daughter on to kind of caretake her soul in in the in the uh, traditional way. Um, this leads to a very uh, kind of uh, this this play is full of of the of the uh, metaphysical um, a very spiritual yeah. play um, <laughs> and uh, she comes back and punishes Iling who is the person who uh, really cued off the the biggest fight between Chiang Bin and Xu Yong which was uh, uh, Iling tells Chiang Bin that Xu Yong sent on to spy on uh, the talks with the Reverend and that really like tips the boat over. Um, so, uh, Su Young comes back as a ghost, haunts Illing and gets her eventually to, uh, basically says like you're, you and your child will be better off if you don't succumb to Christianity, if you kill yourself as well. Um, uh, oh, I, I don't know if I actually said that. Illing is pregnant. <laughs> Eling <laughs> is pregnant um, and uh, about to have a kid, and uh, so so. But Su Young shows up and manages to convince Eling to uh, kill herself, and that that would be the better path. So at the end of the play, Ching Bin is kind of left with Luan, someone uh, who he doesn't um, he, he professes to not love as much, um, which is kind of an interesting um, contention between the family there. Um, he, he, uh, he would, would have likely picked Iling, I think is the, the way that the, the story is leading us. Cause, uh, Iling, uh, Luan and An all eventually become Christian alongside him. And, and yet he is, uh, as a result of this kind of, uh, encroachment of, uh, Western ideals into their family, two of, uh, of, uh, the wives die and, uh, Luan, her son and An are left with Tiang Bin. The final part of the play is uh, flashing forward again in time to uh, the the present. Uh, we we have the uh, An who uh, has been kind of fluidly moving back and forth in the play between uh, Grandma An and like very young uh, little girl An. Uh, continuing Same to actor, talk. actor too, by the way. As yeah, you, as you can imagine, it's not like there's an old woman and then she goes back to be. It's a little kid that plays both the little kid An in the past and Grandma An <laughs> in the contemporary setting. Yeah, there's some interesting doubling of characters. Andrew also the, the character of Andrew also plays Ting Bin. Uh, the character of Elizabeth also plays Eling. So there's yeah, there's some really interesting doubling happening. We flash back forward to the scene where uh, on kind of. Uh, buttons up the story and uh, kind of uh, finishes up telling Andrew this sort of correctionary tale or, or really just this account of, of a big change in their family, which leads Andrew to the expression of, I should really write this down. I should really, you know, track my family so that I know where I belong and so that I can try to uh, be sure that my uh, future child belongs to this ongoing story of the family. There's lots of uh, little things that I'm excited to get to talk into, but that is the kind of broad sweep of the play and the broad sweep of the action and the, uh, yeah, the, the, the character and plot of the play. 
Yeah, and, and it, I think it makes sense, even as you hear Jackson talk about it, that it is that exoskeleton story that has needed so much massaging across the life of this play. And David Henry Hong is, is quite frank about that. Because it is, it's so little of the play, but it's so much of why this story is being told into the present moment. So Andrew and his wife, Elizabeth, and, and there seems to be some conflict around the fact that Elizabeth is pregnant. Andrew as Jackson said, I don't know if you caught it, but it's a fairly important detail, is in his 50s. So, and this is their first child. He, he says to to Grandma on, again, played by a little girl, that he uh, he has not wanted to have kids, and he has avoided it his entire life. He's in his 50s. and uh, but, but she's pregnant with their first child, and there is some question of whether this is a child that they really want to keep, whether this is really something that they want for their life, and that is sort of the present moment conflict into which grandma spirit on tells this story from their past. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, so like in that way, you're kind of set up to think of it as this, like either, either parable-ishness or like, or some sort of thing that is meant to speak into this, in the, into this direct moment. And I think like most, it, it, it does, it certainly affects a change in Andrew um, and kind of uh, contextualizes himself and, and in a way that he finds himself in his story of his family and that allows him the ability to uh, kind of live forward into this and kind of release some of the anxiety that he has, at least for the moment, around becoming a father. Yeah, and, and truthfully, I'd be very interested in seeing what changes David Henry Huang made to that exoskeleton story yeah. in the 2012-2013 Signature Theater production because even in his interviews around that production, that's the part of the story that he talks about. I really need to do some rewrites in that section. I'm not quite happy with it, not quite happy with how it resolves. The, it's a lot of movement for the character all at once sort of in the end. So I, I'm, I'm very interested in that and how that evolves. But I also think it's worth noting as we started with, that is such a small part of the play, right? I mean, like 90% of the play is this story from Andrew's ancestors and from David Henry Huang's family. And and the conflict there, it it was framed a little bit in the synopsis as like East versus West, but I really think it's more modernit like the 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 evolution of ideas and sort of the modern world being brought to this very traditional culture more than anything there there's a question um uh, they're they're discussing uh foot binding right and and uh uh Tiang Bing ha- has come back from the Philippines already carrying that idea that modern people even in the Philippines modern people are not binding feet anymore. It's a painful practice. Uh, Maybe we shouldn't be doing it. And this is really even before the white pastor-priest character has brought in that part of the culture to them. He's already come to the family with this idea that I'm not sure that's right. And there's this sort of discussion around that. And really powerful quote, you see it in a lot of the trailers for productions and on posters, is um, it's from that character. He says, why should we cling to tradition that only passes down suffering from one generation to the next? And it's quotes like that. There are several more of them, and I'll bring them up as we talk, that really, to me, 
make this play pop into the the present moment? Because that's a question that we, I think, can ask in today's world, too. We're not beyond traditions that bring suffering from one generation to the next, right? So what are we clinging to that we're unwilling to let go of? Uh, uh, the, the, the oldest of the three wives, the first wife, she says, how much change can people endure, right? And so, how, I mean, what, what are we holding on to just simply because we can't endure the change that only passes on suffering, really? Which I think speaks to the kind of the theme that's under that theme, you know, whether you frame it with the modern and the traditional or, or how exactly you frame it. Um, there's, this, there's this question of responsibility underneath all of all, all of this play. There's this question of what is my responsibility to stop change or to adopt change, to continue yes. to carry on the story of my ancestors and be sure that they are care took and that their names are remembered, or to move into this new and more individualistic, less uh, less um, uh, ancestrally aware sort of religion. What is the responsibility, as as you said to my child? Is it to uh, is it to be sure that she uh, continues in this culture that uh, prizes this this practice, though it is a painful, a very hurtful one? Or is my my duty to my daughter to be sure that she leaves behind this painful practice and moves into um, this 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 kind of new modern way of 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 life? So so there's this, this kind of core question of responsibility, uh, and and of course the, the the big responsibility to the household, both of the wives to each other and to Tiang Bin, and also of Tiang Bin to these three women who he has married. What is my responsibility to the three of them if I have to only be married? to one of them and and like what's my responsibility to change as part of this too right i mean i mean Tiang bin brings in all of this change into his family and and so little of it affects him in fact a lot of it is what he wanted anyway right and that's the yeah. sort of the criticism that several of them throw back at him right there's the moment he's talking about the foot bindings and how it's barbaric he says and how it's it's painful and violent and it's definitely going to stop and uh siu young says Tell me, husband, would you marry a woman with unbound feet? For the sake of your daughter, answer truthfully. Men, you dream of changing the world when you cannot even change yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's that, yeah, it's that, it's that question of, you know, what is appropriate? What is, uh, yeah. How much change can be sustained, um, within a short amount of time by this, this, this family and, and this family that already has some, some, you know, uh, anger and problems with each other from the first scene, um, <laughs> from <laughs> yes. the very first scene, <laughs> Siu Young, Luan and Iling have this, this dynamic between each other of some, you know, some anger towards each other and some, uh, some, uh, uh, oh, what's the, what's the reword? Um, some, some, yeah, just some anger, some disappointment, some, uh, jealousy between each other, um, uh, uh, about, about their life together. Yeah, I mean, from the very first moment we meet these three women, their relationship with each other is very much set up by Huang as a sort of power battle, right? I mean, the for really the first exchange is uh, Luan and Iling arguing about one of the servants and what they've been told to do in service of getting the the house and the village ready for Ting Bin to come home. And, um, excuse me, <clears throat> 
And so the, 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 the argument that they're having then has to be settled by Siu Young as she comes in. And, and so all of this sort of rotating, I, I want to be in charge of this. I, you know, there's the, the question, there, there's this sort of traditional hierarchy to their relationships, right? There is this, the first wife, and this is what's brought up in the script, is sort of the honored wife, the one that is in charge. And Luan fairly openly wants to sort of advance her position. She's the second wife. And she wants to sort of advance her position. All throughout the play, there are these scenes where the characters pray to their ancestors. They offer sacrifices, they worship, and they pray. And in these moments, just as in prayer moments uh, from all religions in lots of plays, are really about revealing to us what these characters really want in their private, most sort of secret inside parts that you reveal in prayer. And Luan's first prayer that we see on stage is, uh, a prayer that the humility of her and her son would be recognized and rewarded with absolute power, I believe is yeah. the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolute power. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Those scenes are, are great sort of uh, insight. Like I like what you said. They're, they're great insights, moments kind of behind into the psyche of the characters where they are speaking to people who they trust everything to. Um, and and so we kind of get this this great sort of inside look at at each of them. And, and, that's, and that's sort of kind of repeating theme happens for all four of those characters because Chang Bin also has these great scenes where he's um, wondering about this change, like wondering to the face of his ancestors whether he should abandon them or not, whether he should stop uh, caring for them, at least in the manner that he has been doing so all of his life. So it's these these great scenes to kind of like get into the introspective mode <laughs> of these characters as they they grapple with all this change. And it, it it's it, it's an interesting part of sort of the the supernatural the the magical the 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 non realistic world of the play because these these moments where they pray to their ancestors there are moments where then that spiritual realm invades back into the play in the moment this is just at the end of the act where Ting Ben finally sort of enforces his will about the foot binding thing and demands this is no longer going to be the practice. He forces An's feet to be unbound, which is an incredibly painful process in and of itself. In that moment, the sort of voices of his ancestors come to him and ask him real questions about what, what happens if you simply scrap everything that that you have believed in, that you have lived your life by, these traditions, these cultural uh, facts of our life. If you sort of let all of those go, what what is the cost and consequences of that? Uh, like one one example of these sort of they're not they're like sort of individual quotes lines. They're, they're not yeah. rather than a dialogue. And so one of them might be, for example, those who forsake the past enter the future without a tongue to speak or eyes to see. So th- those sorts of things speak their way back into his life. And then, of course, uh, as uh, 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 as um, Siu Yong and Eling, as they pass away at the end, they become these sort of ghost presence characters. And then there's the voice of ancestors that's brought to Andrew at the very end. So at the same time that these physical characters are speaking into the spiritual realm through these prayer moments, the play does have a, a, a sense in which the spiritual realm is also invading their lives. I mean, the play starts with the spirit of An, the grandmother, right. visiting him in the body of An as she appeared as a young girl. 
Yeah, yeah. There's Throughout the play, it is just assumed as a reality that the spiritual world is something to be interacted with um, and and interacted with on multiple levels. Certainly the, 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 the kind of grandma on coming back as sort of a counselor to Andrew, a, a chance for him to hear the story again. You, you talked about the voices that are Tiang, to Tiang Bin, but also then uh, Siu Yong comes back as uh, this kind of almost vengeance, a vengeful spirit to come back and... Uh, and uh, hold Elling accountable for what she did to her. So, so yeah, all through this play, there is this intense, uh, not intense, but very, very real sense of the spiritual world, a, a tangible sense of the spiritual world that, 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 that it is this, this ongoing reality that, that, that the characters and that, I think that lands the, the, the tension or the, the conflict of the play home so well, because the characters aren't just, um, aren't just giving up their prayers. They're giving up, uh, which which is a significant thing to give up, but they're also giving up this really tangible relationship, a relationship that we see on stage is real um, and and very much a part of their lives that, that this connection to these people, to these spirits, are, is is a very real loss for them. And I think that the, the way in which the sort of stage magic of the spiritual realm invading the story is it's it's very it's revealed to the audience right we understand that these are actors that they're playing characters from the spiritual realm who are you know engaged in life i think david henry huang pays it off in a really interesting way which is that there's a scene late in the play it's really the last major scene for luan the character um, she has a, a very short scene with Tiang Bing after the other wives have passed but this is really her last large scene and the scene is um Ting Bin has has been told that An, his daughter, is only attending these like Christian training sessions as a spy. He's gone to sort of take to, to put his foot down about that. Uh, so uh, Song has has. Uh, sort of overspilled her anger about that. Of course, she is is just soon after this going to commit suicide on stage. So there's a lot of turmoil at this moment of the play, right? Really is what I'm getting at. And and An understands that someone has betrayed the fact that she was there to spy on them. So An goes to Luan's pavilion and pretends to be a spirit of the ancestors. And she gets, she sort of delivers these sort of prophecy-sounding things about the bitterness and the pain that Luan is going to suffer as a result of that. Um, and Luan sort of figures it out, but only at the end. She really buys in for some of it, or there comes a moment where she really believes this might be possible. And I think the reason why that scene is so interesting and effective is that I do believe there's a sense in which the audience, because... Uh, the stage magic is working in the same way that the spiritual reality works in the play that we might also for a few moments there be convinced alongside the one that on is sort of channeling the voice of the ancestors. And then when it is revealed that that is not the case, I think we get to sort of live into Luan's experience in that scene. And it's a really important scene for Luan where she sort of sets up that her conversion to Christianity is in large part about her belief that this is going to unseat uh, the the Seo Young, the older wife, and and put her in a position of power. 
Yeah, yeah, there's 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 no reason to doubt that that the actress playing on is in fact now a spiritual character because we've seen her transform more than once already. Um so so yeah, there's there, there is this real sense of kind of wondering whether or not this is another one of those moments for the audience and that draws us into the moment for the character and all that sorts of like that sort of like tension or not tension filled but like it, um, really genuine wondering the kind of journey that we go on in this play is this like really inductive sort of uh, ooh I wonder if this is happening or this is happening sort of things or or just even which way the characters are going to go there's a lot of um, uh, dichotomy choices in this play and you kind of wonder how each of the characters is going to approach them there's a pretty extensive scene between Chiang Bin and Reverend Baines where uh, the, the uh, individual versus the collective Collective is is a dichotomy that's presented. There's this uh, bragging versus humility that is often a theme in in throughout throughout much of the action of the play. Um, this 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 sort of uh, drive in a collective society to not uh, brag about something uh, so that you would bring down uh, someone else in your society is something that is uh, uh, foreign in the Western mindset. So uh, there's a scene between Reverend Baines and Tiang Bin where Reverend Baines like gets him, tries to get Tiang Bin to brag about him himself um, and try to claim some of these some of these uh, you know good things about himself but stuff that he would never voice out out of a sense of humility whether that's false humility or not is up for debate but um but he would never he voice puts it out it in the language of obligation right like obligation yeah. to a larger system of his family his extended family and his ancestors all of whom are sort of he in in his sense of the world watching and judging his every move. Which again ties into that sort of responsibility theme, that sort of undercurrent of obligation, of of responsibility to yeah, to your your culture, to your family, to your uh, family that is past, and to your 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 neighbors as well, and trying to uplift and and be be uh, hospitable to all of them versus the more Western individual approach that is advocated by the, the Reverend in these scenes, which is uh, just a great, fascinating scenes. He has he has a, a very clear English accent and somewhat. We're hearing the play in English, but he's but they're speaking in Chinese, so his English is a little broken. It's just a great, great uh, play with language in the scenes that kind of sets the tone for this pretty, you know, intellectual debate <laughs> around yeah. uh, individual and collective. It's a very popular uh, device for when two languages are trying to be communicated through one language. You see it in, in Decent, but you see it a long time before that, too. It's not like Paul Vogel invented it, but that's the most popular recent play that really use, uses it in this effective way. And so basically, like, English is the only language the audience hears, right? But when a character is speaking a language that is not their own, even if the the language that they're speaking is English, they they speak in sort of a a, a very sort of stuttering, simple, broken version of that English language, which in this case communicates that the Reverend is speaking Chinese, a language that he can't really speak. But then later, when he speaks in English, to the the character does, we still hear it in English, but it's a fluid, sort of beautiful, normal English that that he would speak in his everyday life, and that has all has long been for a long time and it's it's from like the mid 20th century on has been a very effective theatrical advice for the communication of double languages through a single language and um 
I love that Huang uses it here, and I love that he uses it to sort of destabilize the tactics of the white character in the play, because because we are for the American theater, we're typically used to seeing English-speaking characters as the protagonists, and in this case, when that's no longer the case, there's sort of an interesting reversal and of that uh, common theater trope. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, in, in addition to it, it being, you know, a pretty substantial... Uh, uh, Way to way to show this character who's a little on their back feet, even as they deploy tactics, they don't always go according to plan, um, and he kind of wanders his way into things. It's also just a great. There's there's a lot of this this play that is meant to be comedic. It's also just really comedic from time to time. Yeah, <laughs> as it's very as this funny. character, <laughs> yeah, as this character tries to um, uh, engage uh, in in this pretty you know, yeah, like I say, a pretty pretty uh, philosophical conversation with some some you know uh, attempts at speaking Chinese. Um, so so it's 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 this scene really uh, the the reverend really serves as this uh, often off stage sort of uh, um, worrying force for the family, but for these couple scenes where he's in actually in the action of it, it it's uh, just a great uh, uh, tool to use, a great way to express his kind of um, his his otherness by by using that convention of theater. And like everyone else, he sort of gets caught up in the hierarchy and the, the the power battles that go on within this family unit. There's a really lovely scene where Luan, uh, she has been coming to the, the Bible study lessons and she sort of manipulates a way for the other characters that are there to leave, leaving her alone with the Reverend, where she sort of lays out her case that she uh, she ought to, she, she was in sort of interested in his help in establishing her as the only wife when the inevitable as part of this conversion to Christianity, Ting Bin is going to have to select one wife. And, and so she sort of tries to reach out to the reverend to see if he will help her gain that position. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah, it's an interesting kind of politicking again. Uh, the Reverend, of course, uh, it, she she offers the Reverend to to kind of set up this pretty public moment so that the kind of com- greater community around can see Tingbin uh, convert to Christianity, and likely a lot of them will follow. So yeah, they kind of get in on get in on each other's side. It's an interesting sort of extra extra level of politicking that he's trying to do again with this this sort of his his his. Uh, insertion into both this family and the community. Yeah, well, and and so all of the stuff about, you know, the the characters and the themes and stuff is awesome. But with David Henry Wong, there's always an extra awesome to the plays, which is the way in which he theatrically imagines this story told. And there's so much... There's just so much incredible work done in this play, as there was in M. Butterfly, as there is in Yellow Face, and as we will discover as we go. But I think of just the the beautiful, terrible, painful juxtaposition where on stage simultaneously, uh, the members of the family that are converting to Christianity are taking communion and are being baptized by the reverend, while we also see uh, Song Yu. Uh, or I'm sorry, Siu Young, 
taking the op- over intentionally overdosing on opium, which will of course lead to her death. So it's a suicide. Uh, at both of those moments occurring on stage, and the sort of taking into your body, right, of both communion and the opium balls, and the the just incredible, you know, made fleshness of both of those things on stage at once. Yeah, yeah, the kind of simultaneous action uh, theme <laughs> happens happens throughout. There's a number of there's great use of lighting to separate action in in in, in it, on stage, and then also just characters who are hidden. For instance, on uh, hides her way through a number of scenes, and uh, though she is not a speaking character in many of the scenes, um, she she overhears a lot of them, and sometimes shows up into and breaks into them. But this sort of sense of Two things happening at once, offsetting each other. You're aware of one, but one is getting your focus. Really, like, adds some juxtaposition to the experience and some stakes to the experience. Like the scene that you described, those are pretty significant stakes. Uh, You see the effect uh, that this family turning to Christianity has on one of the family. Um, and it's an, it's a significant effect. So so yeah, this this use of multiple pools, multiple pools of focus to juxtapose the action of the play is 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 fascinating. Also though the 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 way that like An works her way through all the scenes. The play is called Golden Child, right? And, and she calls her, she calls herself the Golden Child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She calls herself the Golden Child. She's she's in both the you know future slash present scenes and this past scene. So so she she has the kind of character we ride along with is an interesting thing because she's not always in the action of the middle part of the play. However, she's always around it. She's always affected by it. It's just, it's a fascinating way to, to kind of carry your title character and the character who's in every scene. Yeah, and and I actually have to admit a little I'm a little confused by the the prevalence of on as being the title character and being the person by which Andrew the contemporary character that's in the exoskeleton of the story, you know, has access to the story, but she is not I mean, it's not like she's not a significant role, but she she makes very few of the decisions which drive the action of that middle part of the play. I think I could say that with confidence. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I agree with that. I think that the the piece that kind of sets her apart in the in the action of the past is this kind of last scene between her and Tiangbin, where he is just distraught about his choices because he has lost his first wife, he has lost his third wife, who who he, he loves a lot, um, and also the child that his his third wife was carrying, and he is just he is uh, distraught at kind of what the the ruin that he has wrought in his family, and An is the one who winds up kind of talking him down from that. So An kind of takes on the role that the the role of this kind of family ter- caretaker in that scene, but it is a long time coming. I mean, that's the last like three pages of the script <laughs> that she that she does that. So so it is it is interesting to kind of see the weight of her character um, shift throughout the play as she is the focal point of some conflict, but sometimes she is the 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 voice of reason in the conflict too. 
I'm going to try to articulate one of the things that I think is so fascinating about the theatricality of Golden Child, and I, and I may not be very successful because it's a little ungraspable to me. But so, so when David Henry Huang talks about writing this play, right, he talks about how he picked up this book that he wrote when he was like 10 about his family history, and he picked it up as an adult, a, a professional career theater artist, to, to come back to it. And he had engaged in a strange process of writing a play with his 10-year-old self, communicating to him through the form of this book that he wrote when he was 10, right? So that's a very interesting little image, a very theatrical image, actually, in and of itself. So then he writes Golden Child, right? Which is, in this play, the person of Andrew, the contemporary guy, puts on the clothing and starts to play the character of his great-great-grandfather. So he's experiencing the story of his ancestry by embodying the story of his ancestry, right? He's playing this character in this... It's not quite a play within a play. It's more like a story within a story, but because of the, 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 the recognition that it's a play is not recognized by the characters as much. But at the same time, we, the audience, know that the actor playing Andrew is just an actor. So there's like several theatrical... Um, there's several levels of, of theatricalness to this script that's so fascinating. An actor is playing Andrew playing Tiong Bin, the character's great-great-grandfather. Like, it's sort of like Crap's last tape, right? Where Crap, <laughs> in the in the present of the play, is listening to his past self tell this story about a journal the past self is reading from a different past self. And there's all these versions of Crap at once on stage, right? And we also simultaneously know that it's just an actor playing a guy named Crap and all these versions of himself on stage at the same time. And I think I think he captures, Huang captures a little bit of that sort of the infinite mirror sensibility that can exist in theater in Golden Child in the same way. Yeah, in the in the way that like uh, this this uh, the 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 stage directions describe um, on putting on this wrap onto Andrew to kind of get him into Tiang Bin. There's this very on stage consciousness. <laughs> um, you you see the change. It's not supposed to be you know magical Peter Pan esque change where the father becomes Hook off stage and you wonder oh oh it's, it's actually him. You're supposed to notice <laughs> that Andrew steps into the role of Tiang Bin. And I think that yeah it certainly has that. That sort of infinite mirror effect, it also really grounds the lesson home in a different way than just the character being told a story by his grandma's spirit. Um, you, you just you just feel it different when the character has walked the story himself. And, and I think that helps the last scene, which is quite a change. We only spend the two scenes with Andrew and we, he, he goes, he goes 180 in those, in those two scenes. So having spent the play with the actor playing Andrew, playing Chiang Bin, that that journey makes a little bit more sense. You can you can go on that journey with him as he experiences the embodiedness of the story, um, which changes him fundamentally. Yeah, absolutely. And I and, and you know the the question that is asked by this main middle section of the play, the part from the early nineteenth century about his his great grandparents, right? The question of like, what is the cost of change? 
when is change worth it even at any cost? And that that is very much the question that Andrew in the contemporary world is asking himself, right? As everything in his life is about to change, as he's worried about, um, you know, passing down the negative parts of his life to this potential child that, that may come into their lives together. And so whether or not, you know, the play is the, the, the story that great-grandma An tells, or grandma An tells about great-grandpa Ting Bin is a parable in so much as there being like a neatly packaged bow. It's a very sprawling, messy, gray kind of story. And I think you probably heard even Jackson and I try to sort of stumble around like all these different pieces of things that happen and complicated and take the moral gray area to this huge bubble. And, and at the center of it is this question about bringing change into your life and, and, and what the cost is going to be. And it's that question that uh, uh, Siu Young asks, right? How much change can people endure? And there's that question juxtaposed with the question that Tiong Bin asks, which is, why should we cling to tradition that only passes down suffering? And you get those two questions smashed together in the middle part of the play. And that's, I think, what Andrew then is, is brought to him at the end of the play to try to make sense of. There are so many other themes, as Jacob just said, rotating around those core themes of the play. We could like do little offshoot conversations about each of the individual subplots of this play um, that would be compelling conversations, compelling, you know, college papers um, or, or just just great conversations in general. Alas, we are out of time on the podcast, but we love to keep talking about Golden Child with all of you out there. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of those sites if you're looking to talk to someone about Golden Child who has read the play, who likes having conversations about the play. We are those people, and a lot of the people on those social media sites are those people too. So post on any of those sites. We and the whole NoScript crew would like to have those conversations with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode, if you've liked the other episode that exists so far in Huang, uh, David Henry Huang month and the two that remain for our uh, our themed month this season, then pass folks along to us or any of the other episodes that are out there. You can pass some folks in your life that you think might like No Script on to us. They can find us at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Podbean where we are hosted. You can also like us on Facebook and the new episode appear will appear every Monday including another play by David Henry Huang next week. Yes, indeed. So until next week when we are talking about that play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast.